this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. So what do you do when you get a low ball offer for your company? Do you walk away? Do you pound your fist on the table? Do you justify why you're worth more? My next guest, Sean Finder, experienced that situation firsthand where he built a company and as you'll hear, thought it was worth much more than the original offer. Rather than walk away, he worked with the offer, ultimately getting it up to a place that he was comfortable with, they were comfortable with, and they consummated a deal. Here to tell you the entire story is Sean Finder. Sean Finder, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. I look forward to talking today. Yeah, auto close. First of all, I love the name. Um, and for folks listening, it's with a K. Yeah. Tell me about this business. What, how did it start? What, what did you guys do? So it started, uh, first off, we were doing, uh, we had a company called Exchange Leads, which was a data company, similar to the old Jigsaw, which was acquired by data.com. And then what happens is we had all these data, com- data guys buying our data and we're like, okay, well, why are we letting them go to another software to start emailing these, these data that we're providing the data for? And that's where Autoclose came from. So you sold email lists? Is that, is that, you had like email lists? If I wanted to buy it like from a third party email list, I, I could come to you. Originally it was a subscription model, but yes, it was email lists that we did before Autoclose was even born. And then we Got parlayed so, that business. Okay. So in the old days, I would buy a list from you and I would upload it into whatever email platform, MailChimp or exactly. Constant Contact, whatever I use. And you're like, why are we sending everybody off of platform to use the email? Why don't we create a platform? This sounds expensive. Like, how do you go about building a, a, like a, a platform? I mean, like, did you raise money or like, how did you kind of get this off the ground? That's a great question. And I think you'll appreciate this one because we're both from Toronto. Um, actually, with Exchange Leads, one of our first clients was Rogers. And Rogers, big such, telco for folks listening. It's like yeah. uh, ATT wireless or something in the US. Yeah. yeah. And getting that contract with them in our first year and a half, we ended up using that money to develop auto close while we were running exchange. So instead of paying the Canadian government, we took the Rogers contract, we took the money and reinvested it in building the email platform. So as you said, it would have been very expensive to build, but uh, getting that first, I guess, whale client right at the beginning really helped us. 
I love it. I love it. Nothing like getting your customers to finance the growth of your business. <laughs> so did you get them to pay up front or how did, like, how did you get the cash? How did that work? It was paid every quarter. So it was a quarterly contract okay. for the data. Um, but what we did was we ran exchange leads solely for about a year and a half, um, grew it as much as we can. And then we reinvested all the money into the email side of things, which was our sales engagement platform, Autoclose. Great. So Autoclose, so uh, like I'm familiar with, and I think most people listening to this would be familiar with like, again, like a MailChimp, a yeah. constant contact. Is that what Autoclose was or is it fancier than that? Great question. So the biggest difference between a MailChimp and an, an Autoclose is when you use MailChimp, you're doing very marketing HTML and you're sending it to all the emails from MailChimp servers. However, with Autoclose, we actually go right into John's email, connect to it and allow you to send those emails from John to that prospect rather than going from a MailChimp or constant contact. And why do people care? Why is that important? Great question. Deliverability. Uh, when you're using a third party and you put a list into MailChimp and you get a high bounce rate, people aren't valid, they don't work there anymore, they'll either A, put you in a, a bucket where your emails will go into promotions folder, the marketing folder. But when the emails are actually going directly from John to Sean, they all get delivered. Got it. Got it. So you had higher deliverability rates. Yeah. And who was the competitor? Uh, like I've heard of, there's a company called Salesloft. Would, would, would that do something similar or were they directly competitor? They, at the beginning, they were direct competitor. Salesloft and Outreach.io, um, both okay. are unicorns now. Um, but obviously, you know, what we did was instead of going after those high, um, large tech companies, we kept our focus on the SMB space, on those small and medium-sized companies. So we would let them have the enterprise, but we'd tackle that SMB and really focused only on email, whereas the sales lofts and outreach focused on more of that multi-channel where it could be email, phone, SMS. Got it. So what was the business model? I mean, were you guys billing like on a SaaS basis? Did people subscribe to this or how did, how did that work? Yeah, it was a SaaS platform. Um, so for the auto-close email platform it was you can do month to month quarter quarter or annually and then we had the data side of things so we we parlayed our exchange leads database that we were selling the data for into article so now not only can you use this for email you can also buy a list like you said so there's two different revenue streams and the data was also an annual subscription only oh that's cool so you could it wasn't just a shell that you had to fill with information you, got you, it. you could also that's interesting and so the target was small medium-sized businesses here's the thing I've heard SMBs uh, can be high, just a naturally higher churn rate relative to enterprise. They're easier to win, but they're less sticky because the contracts are, well, they just, for obvious yep. reasons, there's a lot more turnover. Did you guys experience the churn associated with SMB? We did. And, and I'll tell you one thing I learned from, from running a few businesses now is I have get more headaches from a $49 deal than I got from a deal that was worth $100,000. Less headaches. I never heard from the $100,000 deal throughout the year, but the $49 deal was in my support every single day. So um, churn is a problem because you know they have you know, less capital. If they don't get an ROI right away, return on their investment, they're moving to the next platform and they expect the best support for a $49 deal. So uh, churn is definitely higher at the SMB space than it is at the enterprise space. What kind of churn rate did you guys have like on, a, on an annual basis? So, you know, it was when we started off, we were really, I would even believe we were like, more under small. So we were at 20%. We're high. We're 20 to 25% churn. And per year or per month? That was, uh, we were doing per year, per month at the beginning. And then we slowly continue to decrease that. And now we sit about, you know, anywhere between six to 8%. But that was a big challenge in our second year was really decreasing that churn um, because uh, 
because of our clients who are a lot smaller companies, solopreneurs, very, very small businesses at the beginning. Got it. So in the beginning, it was 25% monthly churn and you're now down to sort of six or eight per month. Yeah, we were about six to eight, yeah. Got it. And so what did you find to be the most important? Because a lot of people listening to this would either have a subscription model or experimenting with a subscription model or, or want to have one. What have you found to be the best ways to lower churn? Well, A, our number one thing was actually hiring a customer success person. Um, that was a big game changer for us. So what happened was we had the 14-day trials um, and we had people on the platform. But as simple as we thought our platform was and how easy it was, our user interface is very easy. Some people didn't find it easy. But now that we have those customer success that literally handhold you on your first time, get you set up, et cetera, they spend 30 minutes with you and that's all it takes, it has reduced our churn immensely. So um, that was the biggest thing we implemented in, in year two. Right actually, no, sorry, end of year one, we did that. And, uh, and we've been growing our customer success team because as we continue to onboard, every person gets that kind of white glove approach on their first time on the platform. Mm -hmm. And the average uh, price that people pay for AutoClose, what, what, what's that? So our, our monthlies uh, for the subscription, we start at about $50. Annuals go about $500 for the platform. And the data would be a separate cost. It's about $3,000 a year for just access to our database. And our database has about 37 million U.S. contacts and they're only B2B. Got it. Got it. How did you think about the, the fatigue associated with the list? As you guys grew, clearly that database was being pinged a lot of times by your customers. Like, how did you guys think through the, the associated fatigue that would, 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 yeah. would set in with the list? What was your what was your thinking? So there? so early on, we had to do a lot of um, a lot of purchasing new lists for ourselves. Um, but what we implemented in AutoClose is um, we actually validate every email real time now. So therefore, when our people are using our database and emailing people, they're emailing our people at the same time when they're emailing for us. We're actually cleaning our database because we're getting a reply back saying this email is valid, invalid, catch-all, etc. Marking with a, a timestamp in our database. So. For example, if we're sending about 60,000, 75,000 emails per day from AutoClose, we're cleaning our database by that same amount every single day. Um, that's one way we do it. And we also have an internal data team out of Eastern Europe that manually um, have an internal Google Chrome plugin we built that validate the contacts every day as well. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's, that's super helpful. How did you guys get around all this spam stuff? Like, I don't know, there's like GP, GD, is it called GDPR, GDPR in Europe? Yeah. And then Castle. there's Castle and there's like every country now has its own yeah. craziness. Well, how did you guys get around all that stuff? Or well, not around, very, but how did you yeah. remain compliant to all that stuff? Exactly what I said earlier. We reason why we only have US contacts in our database. We stayed away from Castle and we stayed away from GDPR. So we only provided US contacts because in the US you have canned spam, which you just need to put the stuff at the bottom, but you are still allowed to email. Um, in, in Canada, you can't email at all. And also with GDPR. So your customers were American. They were emailing Americans and it, they, you were, they were on side from a, from a, yeah, or we have situation. people in Europe that were emailing us people, but all our contacts were us based only inside the software. Got it. Got it. That's a key distinction for sure. So like you have this data company and you're yeah. like, why, you know, why don't we build an email? How big did you, like, how long did it take you from 
the decision to launch AutoClose to when you decided to sell AutoClose? Like what, what's that period? So we ended up, so it took about, I would say a year to build AutoClose when we're running exchanges. We're building on the side. And then from <laughs> there, we were about uh, under a little under two years old um, when the acquisition happened, which- um, Dude, that's fast. <laughs> I was not looking to get a car. We were growing. We were growing through COVID because people were focusing more on email. Sure. Um, I was not looking for an acquisition. My books and financials were not audited. Nothing was done. We were not prepared at all for even a company to look at us. Um, and it came literally out of nowhere. Okay. So that's interesting. So you're just going about your business, growing yeah. this company. And so what happened? What, like when you say out of nowhere, like, did you get into cold email or what did you get? Oh, I, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I get the cold, we got cold emails all the time, but I always thought it was automated. What happened was I was at the SAS North conference in Ottawa sure. in 2019. Um, so SAS North for folks who don't know that conference is a, is a, is a Canadian Ottawa based uh, for as the name suggests SAS company owners. Yeah. And uh, it's a great event. And uh, so you're yeah. there. So we're a, we're a sponsor. We're one of the sponsors. We had our booth and about 20 feet away was a company called Vanilla Soft that had their booth. And their CMO at the time just walked over and said, oh, what do you guys do? And we sh I showed him a demo of the platform that was in our booth. He's like, I want my CEO to see this. I'm like, no problem. Tell him to come over tomorrow. So the CEO came the next day. He looked at it. Now, for people that are listening, Vanilla Soft focus their sales engagement in the same space, but they're really focused on phone SMS and we're a lot weaker on the email side where we were just focused strictly on email. So he came over and uh, he looked at the platform and he was just like, well, are you guys you know, looking to get acquired? I'm like, well, not really looking, but you know, there's a price for everything. If you, you know, come with something that I can't refuse, I'm more than happy to talk. And Sean, are you a hundred percent shareholder in the company at this point? Are you and your partner have 50, 50 or how did, how did that work? It, it was, uh, at the, it was 50, 50, uh, well, 45, 45, and then there were some options with some, some employees and the dev lead developer, et cetera. So, so uh, we when you said you guys, were you and your partner at the SAS North together? He wasn't there. So he's, oh. he's kind of more of a silent partner. Well, he's involved, but he's more not involved like in the day-to-day -day, like I was. Okay. Um, so even though I was half owner, I still was, you know, the one that could uh, make any decision. Let's just say the voting rights were all mine, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Um, but he was not there with me. So I just... He ended up meeting when we met with the CEO in Toronto, but at the conference, it was just me, my, at the time, CMO and my VPSL, the three of us that were there. So what was your reaction? Like, what? take me inside your head, maybe your inside voice when the CEO of VanillaSoft says, like, are you guys getting, looking to get acquired? Uh, I mean, I'm one of those guys that I'm always willing to listen. Um, did I actually think at that point in time that this was actually going to happen? Because it was just, I showed him a five-minute demo on a computer screen. He's like, are you guys looking to get acquired? And I didn't know that they were looking to A, either acquire an email company like ours or B, build it themselves, which would take you know 18 months to build, a lot of coding. Um, so he said, you know what, I'm going to give you a call next week and then we can discuss this further. And I was not really thinking or looking. And then let alone a week later, he goes, I'm going to come down to Toronto. Can I meet with you and your partner? We're like, well, I guess we, we got to get the finance, the accounting guy, and get these books in place and make sure everything's in the right, the right uh, category here. And that's how, that, that's how it initially started was just through that conference. That's funny. Okay. So where does it go from there? Does, does he come to Toronto to visit you guys? Yeah. So he comes to Toronto. Um, what was that was, like? This was, you know, he's a you know, great guy. We had a good conversation. Um, he was very, so I come from, I come with a finance background. So I'm, 
I thought I was good in finance and numbers, uh, but he came and is an extremely intelligent guy with all about accounting and numbers. Um, he's all about, you know, finance, you know, auditing, et cetera. So we were going through the numbers, but, you know, as I said, we weren't prepared. So, you know, we had my, my car allowance in the wrong category. We had a little bit of marketing stuff in the sales category. So it was, it, it, at the, initially I told my partner, like, we lost a little bit of leverage here because we just looked like we're not ready. And I told them honestly, I'm like, you know, we weren't expecting. So the books aren't audited by, you know, a big accounting firm. Um, things are in the wrong category. You know, you know, every startup does a little bit thing where, you know, I'm paying a contractor this and, you know, where does this number come from? So we weren't really you guys at this point, like give us a sense, like in terms of revenue or number of employees or some proxy for size. Yeah. So at this, at this point we're, we're close to, uh, at that point we're about close to a million dollars. So at that, when we initially started talking. Million dollars, top line revenue. Yeah. So, uh, but we're profitable. We were profitable. I had this company profitable in six weeks. So we were profitable right from the beginning. We're bootstrapped and profitable. I ran it very lean and hired a, a huge team out in Eastern Europe because my partner was actually from Serbia. And we grew our entire team with our lead developers, support, customer success, everything out of Serbia. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. That, that, and that's, what, by the way, what was VanillaSoft's reaction to, to learn that all of your you know, key people, your developers, your customer success were A, on contract, B, in Serbia? What was yeah. their reaction? So, so initially, I mean, you know, he took it in and then he thought about it and he was like, this is a great opportunity because they already had at that time 65 employees. And he's like, well, you know what? For the price we're paying people in Eastern Europe, we could probably get three people for the same price we're paying somebody in Toronto. Um, hmm. And I'll tell you from my own personal experience, a developer here in North America, a developer in Serbia, I will still take the developer in Serbia every day of the week. Um, they are very knowledgeable, great work ethic, coachable. Um, great team people. So uh, we had a great time. We, you know, they're still working with us today. That's awesome. So, okay. So the, the, the CEO of Vanilla Soft is pouring through your books yeah. and starting to kind of, so what, <laughs> yeah, sort of pick them apart. Uh, so what happens next? So he comes in and then, you know, after a day he goes, uh, he said, he looks at us and I'm like, okay, well, you know, before we waste each other's time, because one thing I will tell the audience is when you're going through this whole process, you are going to have to do a lot of due diligence get a lot of stuff. It takes you away from your day-to-day business. So if you don't have somebody that's continuing to grow the business, it takes a lot of time. So before we did that, I said, well, give us an offer, you know, give us what you think or are approximately what it's going to be valued at. And at the time um, he gave us the first, you know, the first number and I don't want to say the number, but let's just say, you know, it was about uh, one and a half to one and a half to two X. Okay. X what? Of, of our, of our revenue. Of your revenue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, at that point, you know, I knew it was there was no way I was going to solve for that just because we were growing. I love the team. We're profitable. Continue doing what I'm doing. But at least I, I always said in my house, in my, in my head, you, you got to get the floor. So I got the floor. Now it's my turn to do the ceiling. Um, so what happened was I said, okay, thank you so much. Didn't even comment on it, looked at it. And then um, I said, okay, well, I'm going to come back with what I believe we're valued at. And that's when I spent two weeks building out exactly what we, I thought we were valued at and, and, and obviously came with my ceiling of what, what I'd be looking for. What did you think you were valued at? Like, like how did you, in terms of multiple, that you don't have to show that. Like, but, and, and I'd be curious to know, A, what you thought your company was worth and, and B, where you got that number from. Great, great. That's an amazing question. Um, so a lot of people just look at revenue and say, okay, well, you're, you're worth this. But that's not how I valued my company. I valued my company as 
A, my team, B, the code, and how much it would be to take to build that same code that I've spent three, four years building, C, the product. So all three of those things were valued. So I didn't value it on based on only my revenue. My revenue is one thing with a projected growth rate, et cetera, et cetera. But my team and my product have a value. And I, I, thought, I thought my product, so when I actually came back with the ceiling, I said, my product is worth this because I have 250,000 lines at this cost per line for a developer. I've paid you know, $800,000 in development costs. I've paid this much to build my team. My team is valued at this. My revenue is going to be this in three years, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I went, you know, I went a little bit higher than, I came in to think about it, but it was, I think it was about seven to eight X um, from that. So there was a huge gap. Yeah. But at the same time, that was, that was my goal in the negotiation, because as I said, it's all a negotiation. So whatever the first number you, the seller's going to say and the buyer's going to say, you're never going to be there. You're going to have to meet somewhere on somebody's side in the middle. So I've got so many questions. So when, when, when they came with an offer of one and a half times revenue or one and a half to two, something like that. I think it was two. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so closer to two. Um, well, like a lot of people would have been like, you know what? I, you know, I'm not interested. Like yeah. this is so low, you know, uh, again, for people listening, by the way, I should say for people listening, two times revenue for a lot of industries would be astronomical, right? Yes. Like it, it would be over the top, but in SaaS, it's a very different kind of valuation. So this software as a service that generally gets higher multiples. So your reaction to the two was like, it's not enough, but a lot of people I think would have been like, they would have just blown off the acquirer, right? And said, next, like, why did, why did you think there was more on the table? Well, first off, a book I read on negotiation, Never Split the Difference, is an amazing book on negotiation. Chris Voss, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, love that and I yeah. And I did that, and I took negotiations during my MBA as well when I was in school. So I knew you have, you, you're you never going to give your best offer. You're going to give your lowest offer, and the other person give the highest, and then it's you have to fight for where you have to be. So when he first said it, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to solve for that. I know that. Um, and when I when and I knew when I gave him my offer, the initial reaction would probably be like, well, I can't get that approved from the board and it's way too high. It's just not going to work. I knew that in my head, but that's the reason why I did it. And, and that's exactly what happened. I got a call a week later said, it's, it's, it's way too high. I'll never get that approved. Um, I saw your evaluation. I saw how you came up with the numbers, but it's just something that won't, it just won't happen. And that was, and this was at the beginning of COVID. So it was like, you know, even though we were growing, it was like, you know, I just won't get that approved. Um, maybe we should discuss this, you know, another time. And I said, no problem. And that's, we actually stopped talking for a bit. What was going through your mind at that point? He's going to call me back in a month. <laughs> Come on. You, you were that cocky and confident? Really? Like at that point, a lot of people would be like, oh man, I just blown it, it, my it, shot. It, it wasn't that. It just, I know the category that we're in and how quick things are going. Okay. They're going very quick. So his options were, and we were already talking for five, six months. His options were A, acquire us, pay a little bit of a premium maybe, or build it yourself. It's going to take you 18 months and you're going to be 18 months behind your competition. But there Sales were other office. email companies that he could have acquired, no? I mean, there, there were, but then again, is any email, is any SaaS company doing, you know, north of a million dollars going to sell their SaaS for 2X when they're two years in? That's, that's like the, that's the perfect growth stage where you can really start to elevate. So I don't think, I mean, you could have, yeah, but I, I think 
knowing that you know they were in Ottawa, they were a company out of Ottawa. It's a Canadian company. He's four hours away, an hour flight away from meeting us in person throughout the negotiation. Um, he knows us personally because he met us at the conference. A lot of different things, and sure. and I'm not gonna and I, and I I truly believe you know we did have we we do we still do we have an amazing email platform. Even though sales loft and outreach are unicorns, we still get clients that say our user interface, our ease of use is way better than our competitors. Hmm. hmm. So okay. So you throw it seven. He says no way. Board's never going to approve it. Thanks. Good luck. Keep in touch. Yeah. Then what? And then uh, about eight weeks later, six weeks later, he you know called again, and we started talking again. How? Um, okay. What was the reentry point? Like, what did he say? He was just saying, you know, like, like I, you know, I'd like to make things work, but maybe we can look at different options, like you know, uh, a payout structure or uh, a, an equity cash deal, only equity, different options that we can look at, um, because you know they were they're about ten times our size at the time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you know. And for me, it was, I was all about, I wanted cash. Now, the only reason why is young, you're, you're from Toronto, John, you know, the real estate here in Toronto. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you, need, crazy. you need, you need, you need, you need the cash. And especially at my age, I was like, you know, the cash will help. And, and the re- one of the reasons which I, I'd love to tell the audience was, I also said to myself, the stock market just took a huge hit because of COVID. Mm. And can I double my business in a year or can I double my money in the market in a year? And with my finance background, I felt that that we're at the bottom of the market, I can make a lot more money in the stock market than I could by running my business for eight more months. Wow. So this is sort of March, April time frame, yes. 2020. For, for, it, so, that's and yeah, exactly. that's when the, the stock yep. market really took a dive. Okay. Got it. And so he comes back and says, but I'd be curious to know, like, did he say, like, I've, I've reflected on our conversations and I'd love to make it work or I met with my board or like, what, what yeah. was his reason he, for reaching out? He met, he met with the board and, uh, and he's going to give us another offer. Got it. Okay. So he came back with another offer and it was cl- closer to the, to between the two. So it, it was just say, let's just say it was in the, the three, three, uh, three and a half, just say that times top line, top time. So then what happens? I go back and I come back about, you know, five and a half, six and we keep, or, you know, and then we keep moving lower. That's kind of how the negotiation happened. And it was, you know, um, you know, I obviously wanted more cash in the deal. He initially, I think wanted a split between cash and equity, but you know, as I said, it it had nothing to do with the company or the equity. It was just, you know, I wanted the cash to be able to enjoy it now. Um, rather than have an equity in a company that, you know, it could go, it could be amazing. It's going to be amazing. But at the same time, it's, you know, if I'm selling my company, I want the cash to get out now. So I have that to, as I said, um, purchase some nice real estate here in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so where did you guys net out? Like, I'd be curious to know where, where are you, here's the thing. I think a lot of people listening to this going into the first negotiation are going to be like, how will I know? that I push the acquirer as far as I can push them, that pushing them any further will risk the deal. Yeah. How did you know that the gig was up? So I knew that because I knew their product and I, they, they really did need the email side. Um, they needed to, this place, they needed our platform, they needed our people, they needed, they didn't have the email experts like we do on our team. So, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I didn't want to be, I wasn't, trying to be greedy. I, I truly believed our company was what I valued. I, I put mm-hmm. a number towards everything. I did a full calculation on why. Um, 
but at the same time, so, you know, when we, when we started to get close, it was, you know, it was, you know, it ended up being, we we're a few hundred thousand dollars off at the end and that wasn't a big deal. Uh, so we ended up working that out um, with some equity. Um, and, and obviously, you know, for me, it was, I want to also give some money to my team members. I want to give money to my CMO, my VP of sales, even though they had no option. Like I was, you know, I want to give my partner. I, I felt like we were a full team. So we met in the middle and uh, we ended up about a four and a half, five, five. Actually. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, congratulations. I, I mean, I think that's for a two-year-old company with a million dollars in revenue. It's unbelievable. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So How did they? Stru- how did you structure the deal? Because a lot of deals in smaller, younger, newer stage companies are heavily weighted on the back end, like an earnout or yeah. you know, you know. How did you guys structure the the deal? So uh, initially, there was you know we, we were we were offered uh, and, and and don't get me wrong when we were going through the negotiations, like um, the CEO of Inosoft, which is why you know I, I'm still with them now. Um, he was just you know an amazing person to work with. Um, it was great, great to work with them. Um, but what, how we, we ended up doing is, you know, he gave us options. We could do an earnout. We can do equity. Um, initially, they tried the earnout, but I didn't want the earnout. Um, a, because, you know, I don't believe I have to perform for somebody to make numbers when I'm the one that built my company and I've grown it to where it is today. There was also COVID, but even though we never took a hit, we grew. I wasn't going to take a risk and say, okay, well, I'll do an earnout in probably the worst year of the economy in who knows how long because sure. of COVID. Um, so we didn't, I, I, we have nowhere now, um, but you know, I, you know, he went through all the numbers. He did his due diligence. He spoke to our clients. He did a lot of stuff that, you know, he should have done. Um, so we didn't do an earn out. We ended up doing, uh, it was, it was an equity, an equity uh, cash split more on the cash side. Cause that's what's more attractive to us. Um, and then the equity is obviously, you know, just like it would be, it'd be vest over certain along a certain period um, that I and my other co-founder have to uh, stay with Inelisoft a minimum. But, you know, now that we have equity, um, you know, who knows what's next. Yeah. And now you're, so you've got a portion of the proceeds, a minority, but a significant portion was paid in, in yes. equity in Vanillasoft. Now, is Vanillasoft a publicly traded company? I don't know. So Not, not, not right now, no. They're not they're okay. a private company. Um, potentially in the next few years, they're looking at it though. So do you have any rights to sell that? Uh, that equity or, or do you have to hold until they're public? Great, great question. Um, something I actually reached out to my uh, lawyer recently just to find out because I didn't know how exactly it worked. Um, but we, we, we vesting, we're vesting, we're getting their shares over the 18 months that we're working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, I think if there's a, if they go IPO or they raise around, um, there's some different options in there. Um, but I think if they have to, they have to raise funds or go IPO, and then you could liquidate with it. Um, but if there's not, I do not believe so. Got it. And how did you get comfortable with that? Uh, that you know, like what sort of revert? You know, they they refer to it as reverse due diligence, effectively, where you're actually doing diligence on your acquirer to say, like, hey, is this is this company legit? Are they going to be around? Am I going to be able to get this equity and and make it liquid at some point? Like, what kind of reverse due diligence did you do? Well, I mean, one thing is they've been around for 18 years, so they they've they've been there for a while. Um, um, you know, I, I met a lot of the people that are currently in the company. Uh, we did that went through all their you know, legal bills for these acquisitions can be costly. So we went through all the different um, equity agreements or agreements. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think, and, you know, speaking to them, 
it, it came down to, you know, you could go through everything, but it came down to kind of trust. Um, and, and I see the, the, where they're, the direction they're going um, with the acquisition. Um, and, you know, I think it's something that I don't think they're looking to continue to grow small for the next 20 years. I think they want to make a big push, raise money in the next 48 months, 24 to 48 months, um, and take the next step. So, um, you know, hopefully it is liquid at some point because, uh, you know, I always, I always say cash is king. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. So did you buy yourself a trophy? Like what, what, what did you do with the, with the cash? Yeah, well, uh, invested a lot of it um, yep. in the stock market, which I said. And then the other bit is actually going in two weeks. Uh, I'm moving uh, to a new house about uh, two, Congratulations. So two and a half times the size of my current one. So <laughs> That's um, awesome. So going to have a lot more room. Um, and uh, we're moving June 1st into, you know, the area that I, I'd like to live in um, in Toronto. Um, so a lot of the money went to that. Um, and then, um, you know, I'm, I'm still investing in some other startups and doing some angel stuff, which I've always done and, um, dabble a little bit in crypto a little bit. So, um, doing a little bit of everything. That's great. Well, you've probably done well with this the stock market because, uh, you know, obviously the market has improved a lot since, uh, April of 2020. I have uh, techs take a bit, bit of a hit lately, but oh, that's uh, true. Yeah, but yeah, I was big in oil, and oil's doing really well um, as people start driving again and airplanes start going. So uh, I've done okay, um, and uh, I took a little bit. I gave I gave half it to the professionals because I couldn't keep up with the day to day stuff. But uh, it's been a pretty good year. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's great. Um, and where can, can tell people where they can find auto close uh, because. We, uh, a lot of small businesses uh, listen to this show, so maybe we can send a few of them your way if, if they want an email uh, provider. Yep. So what's what's the best way to reach you or what's the website for them to check yep. out? Autoclose.com, and that's A-U-T-O-K-L-O-S-E, and that's close with a K. And for people asking why it's a K and not a C is, and it's a great story for this, is when I when I started with the idea with the company, I looked at Autoclose with a C and they wanted 22000 for the domain. And with a K, they wanted $9.99. So as a bootstrap startup, I chose the K, okay? So that's the, that's the whole reason why it's K. And don't get me wrong, I look back now, I probably should have spent the money because a lot of people mistake us with cars in Europe with the clothes and the auto in the email. So um, that's it. But autoclose.com, email me, Sean, S-H-A-W-N at autoclose.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, always um, – always talking about different email strategies as well. Well, Sean Fighter, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, John. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.